My great uncle's journal is only two pages long, written and narrated by Clancy Pasta. I was walking home from work when I got the call. It was the same dirt country road I'd walked down every day for the past several years. The path so skinny, you'd think it's a one-way street if you didn't know any better. To my left was the setting January sky cast above a dying field of cotton, and to my right was a barren plot of land I hadn't seen so much as a weed pop up from in all the times I'd walked down its perimeter. I wasn't in a good mood that day. Working 10-hour shifts when you were called in for a six did that to me. I knew a lot of guys who loved that would do anything for more hours, and I couldn't blame them. More hours meant more money, and in the age where working a full-time minimum wage job can barely pay the bills, and sometimes not even that, I don't blame them. Add everything going on in the world lately to the pile of lower middle-class struggles, and then I really can't blame them. But I'm not like that. Not that I'm better than that or anything. Not at all. In fact, I feel quite the opposite. While my coworkers seem to carry a spirit that drives them towards whatever goals they have, the already mentioned paying of bills, perhaps saving for college, though today most anybody has to go into debt for that, I guess, saving for a car, furthering this, that, and the other thing. I don't feel any of that. I have all of my bills figured out, and I know that as long as I work X amount of hours, I'll be fine. I'll make it through. And that also means that when the boss tells me I need to stay late to cover for someone, or they book me nearly full-time for a week or two, I'm not happy about it. I'd much rather stay at home, decaying on my couch, scrolling through Netflix all day. But that's just me, I guess. I ignored the first call as I slugged down the side of the road. A few moments later, my ringtone came on again, a cheery jingle that came across mockingly given my current mood. I dug into my pocket and, fishing it out, saw that it was my grandma Shay. I hadn't spoken to her in a few months, and she rarely ever called. It's a bit of a cliché that old people don't know how to text, but she seemed to be a natural at it. Ever since she got a cell phone, actual phone calls were reserved for emergencies, and at best, Christmas or Thanksgiving. So I knew it could be important. I answered the call. Hello? I answered, doing the thing I always do, where I act like I don't know who it is until they tell me. I wonder if others do that as well. I could tell from the moment she began that something was wrong. She had a certain quiver in her voice that's reserved for either delight, fear, or, in this case, grief. I stopped walking as she gave me the news. Uncle Darren had passed. Her quiver broke, and sobs poured through the cell phone speaker. Uncle Darren. I hadn't seen him since I was about 12, and hadn't thought about him in God knows how long. To hear his name again, in this tragic context, was both jarring, saddening, and somewhat confusing. I should give a little more information and context. Darren was actually my great-uncle, my grandmother's brother, but everyone always just had me call him Uncle Darren. He was a strange man, and I knew it from the time I was a little boy. He was of average height, but deathly skinny. He had a long, unkempt beard that stretched to his mid-chest, the sections of hair on the side and back of his head that hadn't gone to age grown out to about the same length. At family get-togethers, he stood out like a chimpanzee at a petting zoo. I never talked to him, really. Just a good old... Hey, sport, Merry Christmas, and whatnot. 
but I had learned quite a lot about him throughout my childhood and teenage years from my father and grandma. He apparently had some issues. He could never keep a job, as he just stopped showing up to work after a few days to a week. This happened over and over again, apparently, and all he would ever have to say for himself was that he just couldn't handle it. At the time of his death, he was in his late 70s, so mental health wasn't really considered much at the time. But just from the stories I'd heard and his way of life and behavior, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a serious anxiety disorder, at the very least. He didn't have friends of any kind, aside from his sister and parents for a long while. He couldn't open up to anyone, and my grandma said that until about the time my father was born, he wouldn't say so much as a word to another living soul unless required to, to buy a Big Mac or something like that. He got better with age, socially, anyways, and by the time I was around, he seemed comfortable enough to spend time with his family and say hello and small talk with guests and, apparently, a little great-nephew he barely knew. But as is always the case, things were more complicated behind the scenes. He still could never hold down a job. He lived with his parents, my great-grandparents, through his thirties, at which point they were getting sick and tired of supporting him. From the sounds of it, he dealt with quite a lot of shit, honestly. It's not surprising these days to hear of adult children living with their parents through their twenties, at least, but once again, he grew up in a different age. He should have been moved out with a wife and kids in a stable job by then, and the fact that he didn't, and that he was reminded constantly about it by just about every person in his life, didn't help his mental state one bit. By the time he was nearing 40, my grandma had married my grandfather, and they were doing pretty well off financially. Not incredibly well, but well enough to have some left over. Initially, my grandma tried to convince grandpa to let Darren move in with him, which he opposed about as seriously as he could have. And I mean, can you blame him? I can't. But I also can't blame my grandmother for wanting to put her brother into a healthier situation. One thing everybody knew about Uncle Darren, and that too few seemed to care about and encourage, was that he loved to paint. It started out as a childhood activity of number two pencils and colorful crayons, but that turned into colored pencils, markers, and eventually, acrylic paint. By the time he'd reached adulthood, that's basically what he did with his life, and was the only thing he wanted to do with his life. He'd get up, eat, paint, eat, paint, eat, paint, and sleep. Everything else seemed to get in the way, and nobody understood. And I have to say that, unfortunately, I can't fully blame them for that, either. Grandma had shown me photos she'd taken of some of his paintings he'd created from his 20s through his 50s. And they were not great. And not in a modern art kind of way, I don't think. He wasn't a surrealist, and he seemed to admire art that was hyper-realistic in nature. Portraits, bowls of fruit, houses, trees, landscapes, people walking around, stuff like that. But his works were less than mediocre. They looked consistently like someone who had just began to learn how to paint, proportions completely out of whack, colors blending and bleeding in unflattering ways, and no sense of depth. Again, he wasn't into surrealist art, and would spend hours at the library looking at detailed scans of breathtaking photorealistic works. That was his aim, and he consistently missed by about a thousand miles. Grandpa wasn't going to let him move in with them, but like I said, they were doing somewhat well off financially, and they had managed to pick up a pretty nice few acres of land off in the mountains nearby. It didn't have much. No water, plumbing, gas lines, electric, or anything like that. But it did have a little cabin, basically the equivalent of a studio apartment, without a kitchen or bathroom, only a small little closet. 
He said he'd look into remodeling it a bit and see how expensive it would be to get power lines and sewage out there. And if Darren would be fine with it, he could live in the cabin rent-free for a while until something could get figured out. My grandma told Darren, and he jumped on the offer instantly. He didn't care that he'd basically be camping out there for a while. Months, possibly years, without basic amenities. He didn't know. But he knew he'd be free, alone, and, apparently, happy. They worked something out where they'd bring him food and water, and bought a little plastic outhouse porta potty thing to place right out back. But luckily for him, they were able to figure out how to get power into the place fairly quickly. In fact, within a few years, the place had been completely remodeled. It still looked like a bare cabin from the outside, but the inside had been plastered over with drywall, which Darren didn't like much, apparently, but it was necessary to put up a little bathroom in the corner. And so it got plumbing as well, got wires and light fixtures hooked up, and the outhouse was hauled off to a dump somewhere. Around this time, my grandpa wanted him to start paying some sort of rent, given all of the expenses they dumped into the place, just for him. Darren had been racking up painting after painting for years, even decades by that point. He'd walk into town every once in a while during the weekend community sales and try to sell them, but it was rare he'd actually make a sale. And like I'd already described, it's not a surprise why. Nevertheless, as time went on and on through the decades, I think he improved enough to start making a few sales here and there. Whether or not pity was a factor is up for debate, but not a very hard one. He started paying a little rent, was eventually able to pay entirely for his own food, and soon enough, he didn't need to rely on my grandparents quite as much as he used to. Stress on the word quite, obviously, as he was given an incredibly good deal on rent, and always had the security of knowing my grandmother would take care of him. In that regard, he was a lucky, lucky man. So, though I was stunned and confused at hearing my grandmother's grieving voice through the telephone, it only took a moment or two for my heart and mind to converge, and understanding to break the surface. I saw her a few days later. She lived about a 30 minutes walk away from my apartment, so it wasn't too bad getting to her place. Opening the door, her running mascara gave away the tears she tried to wipe away. I could tell she was taking her brother's passing very hard despite hardly seeing him in the last few years. Though I suppose that could have made it all worse. So much lost time, you know. Perhaps it would have been better to have the solace of a final loving conversation, or at least to know what he was like near the end. Unfortunately, he had withdrawn once again in his final years, not coming to family gatherings, and not wanting to talk even to his sister, who had done nearly everything to make sure he lived as comfortable a life as he could. There were just too many questions unanswered to comfort the grief. I sat down with her and silently sipped our respective cups of tea. After a while, she sat her cup down and spoke. Would you be willing to come down to the cottage with me and clean the place out? The cottage... She always called it that, the little cabin he lived in. It made the edges of my mouth curl into a slight smirk, but I calmed them down in the matter of a second. This is all just too much for me right now, and I'd rather get it over with as quickly as possible. I don't want the nagging knowledge that I have to get it done weighing on me through the funeral and all the conversations I'll have to face there. I saw a lone tear begin to fall from her eye, and I put my cup down and moved a bit closer to her. Without much thought at all, I said, Sure, Grandma. When are you thinking? She glanced over to the clock on the wall, an old faux grandfather clock about the size of a box of crackers. It read 4.30. 
Well, would you be available to head over now? It shouldn't take more than an hour or two. I hesitated at this. I didn't like changes to my schedule, and when I did go along with it, I preferred them planned in advance. But seeing the look in her eyes, the pain in her voice, I couldn't help but oblige. She drove us down and up the winding country road, the little dirt paths that looked just about like any other around here, but eventually the scenery changed from barren and might as well be barren farmland to the beginnings of a lush, mountainous forest. I always preferred to sit in the back seat when I was the only other passenger, as I liked just spreading out and relaxing, but she had too much junk back there. I spotted a basketball, some old laundry, and a mountain bike littering the back seats. So, I was scrunched up in the passenger. Most wouldn't complain, and I suppose I shouldn't either. We pulled up to the cabin. Despite being only a 20-minute drive from my grandma's, I'd never been up here. I'd only ever seen Darren at family gatherings and my grandparents. From the outside, it looked quite nice. Large pine trees on all sides, a little concrete slab sidewalk that curved to the right, leading to a dirt driveway. Darren never had a car, never even learned how to drive, but I suppose the parking space was my grandfather's creation. There was a single window on the left side by the door. The glass looked grimy, even from the car, and the darkness within made me think it was probably blocked by a hefty black curtain. I followed Grandma up to the door and was surprised when she didn't pull out a key and simply twisted the knob and walked inside. The sight from within grabbed my attention. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but I knew he had been living there for quite a long while. I guess I imagined a couple pieces of furniture, perhaps a small table to eat at, a bed, maybe a bookshelf, or some pieces of art on the wall. Nothing extravagant, but I imagined it to look okay, to one degree or another. But the place looked like it had been ransacked. There was a small table up against the left wall with nothing but a single black sharpie on it. A bookshelf across from me against the back wall was entirely barren, except for, again, a few sharpies of varying color, and the only other thing in sight was a mattress, stained and rotten, sat up against the wall like a piece of decoration. No pillows, no blankets, nothing whatsoever. My jaw dropped to the floor as I heard my grandma begin to weep to my right. She helped me lug the table out to a dumpster she had delivered there the night before. It's one of those where the company will come pick it up after a certain amount of days, not a permanent one. In all honesty, I didn't need her help to move such a small piece of furniture, and she was quite frail as well, but my mind was stuck on the image that had been slapped into my mind upon entrance. I was too distracted to think, and I moved the small wooden table to the dumpster like a zombie. When it came to the bookshelf, I had regained enough of my mind to tell her and get it on my own. And when I came back in to see her standing in front of the mattress, tears rolling down her cheeks, her hand clasped against her mouth in an attempt to stifle any more sobs, my heart broke. I walked up behind her and put my hand on her shoulder. I'm so sorry, Grandma, I whispered. She didn't say a word. I looked around again and seeing as that seemed to be the only thing left that would require any sort of strength, and also noticing the sun beginning to set outside, I sighed. Why don't you head on home? If you can leave me that bike in your back seat, I can make it back to my place within 40 minutes, probably, and I could use the exercise. I think you need some rest, and maybe another cup of tea. 
She turned her head, seeming to break out of her trance, and stared me deep in the eye like a puppy that hadn't seen another living soul in weeks. And then she looked back at the mattress, nodding her head solemnly. I pulled the bike out of her back seat and waved her off as she backed out of the driveway. As her car rounded the corner behind a towering bunch of ancient trees, I observed the sunset. It was very beautiful, and from up here in the mountains, it was a work of art. Hues of purple and pink, fading blues, and wispy whites of the clouds all swirled together in a hypnotizing work of visual candy. I stared out at the sky for a few more moments, before they lingered down to the bike laying on its side against the dirt driveway. I sighed, and knew I needed to get this thing over with so I could get home and relax. Fidgeting with the mattress to try and find the best way to carry it outside, I decided my best route was probably to carry it under my right arm, supporting it with my left, and halfway drag it out to the dumpster. This was mainly because of a small rip in the underside near the center I could grab onto for a grip. As I started dragging it towards the door, I noticed something undeniably hard and pointy digging into the side of my rib. Not sharp or anything, but like the corner of something. It was too uncomfortable to continue, so I sat it back on its side and re-examined the situation. As my mind looked it over to try and find a better way to move it, my eyes settled on what looked to be a small triangle jutting out from the center of the mattress right underneath the cloth. It looked totally out of place, and the idea of it being a busted spring or something equally as expected for a mattress this decrepit and aged was out of the question. And then I remembered the rip on the underside. I walked around and, continuing to prop it up with my arms, I re-examined the rip. Upon further examination, I realized the rip was actually about five times as big as I had originally thought, sewn up with white thread that had just started to come undone. I stared for a moment, the strangeness of it all just beginning to settle in. I dug my left hand into my pocket and fished out my keys. Hoping it'd be as easy as opening boxes from Amazon, I used the key like a knife to try to bluntly slice through the thread. It took a bit of digging and roughing it around, but I eventually snapped one of the threads and eventually made it through enough to rip with my hands the rest of the way through. I pushed my hand into the opening and immediately withdrew. It felt moist and a shiver ran up my spine, along with an audible moan of disgust. But I could see something in there now, what looked to be the edge of a hardcover book. Using just the tips of my fingers, I grabbed the edge, and with a grip as tight as I could manage, pulled it the rest of the way out. And what I found before me was yet again stranger than I had anticipated. I had guessed it was a book, but this was something a little more special. No title or text of any kind on the back, spine, or front. A little piece of leather wrapped around the right edge, secured tightly with a lock. I couldn't open it without a key. Now, my curiosity was definitely running. And without a second thought, I looked around the room. I had already taken everything out, but I hadn't yet touched the closet or the bathroom. I walked into the bathroom and looked behind the mirror. Nothing. But opening the bottom cabinet under the sink, I found a solitary pair of tweezers. It would have to do. Bringing my fine back out, I shoved the steel tweezers between the lock and the leather cover and twisted as hard as I possibly could. It took a few tries, but eventually the lock busted and the strap flew open. A jolt of adrenaline shot through me, somewhat shocked that it actually worked. 
Without thinking, my fingers quickly skimmed through the pages. I guess I wanted to see if anything noticeable would jump out at me. And in that regard, I was not disappointed. The first two pages seemed to be filled front and back with writing, but the remainder was completely black. Literally completely black. I stopped midway through and examined a page. It was slightly warped and seemed to have been drenched in deep black ink or perhaps some kind of thin but powerful paint. This unnerved me slightly, but I couldn't quite tell you why at the time. It was just a little strange, and I knew it, and I couldn't think of an explanation for why almost the entirety of the journal would be blotted out in black ink, or why this particular journal would have been sewn up in Uncle Darren's mattress. Obviously, there was only one thing left to do. I flipped back through to the first page and began reading. The text was small, and at times multiple lines of text filled just one line. I could see it was fairly legible at places, and at times seemed to be scribbled nearly incoherently. But upon deeper inspection, I was always eventually able to make it out. I read the first line. I fear the worst now, but with everything that I've done since the unthinkable has transpired, perhaps I should rest. I don't know. We'll see. Just reading the line raised the hairs on the back of my neck. I found a cleaner spot on the ground and sat down to continue reading. It was just two days ago, while lying in bed, a canvas propped up against my thighs and a pallet of paint to my side, when I began to hear it. It was very quiet at first, so quiet, I couldn't tell if it was the wind or perhaps the ringing in my ears taking on a life of its own. But after a few hours, it began to rise in volume, and I could make out the word too clearly. Darren, it seemed to shout in a strange, raspy voice. It seemed to echo in my mind, and though I heard it clearly, it seemed to be coming from nowhere but within. I did not respond and did my best to ignore it. But as the word continued over and over, at first just every minute or so, and then nearly every other second, I gave in and responded. What? I responded. And then, and only then, did I get a few more moments of silence. And then it spoke, no, shouted again, Darren! I sat up and set the canvas down by the pallet. I focused hard on the constant high-pitched tone reverberating through my skull. It's been there since I was a child. As I listened so intently, I began to realize something was different. The tone, which was a near-constant blare, had begun to wobble slightly. The wobble, the... Reverberation was slight at first, very slow, but it began to pick up speed. It got faster and faster, louder and louder, higher and higher pitched, and I dropped the paintbrush, clasping my hands against my ears. In a fit of panic, I screamed, Who's there? What's going on? And in the flash of an instant, the ringing stopped completely. For the first time in about six decades, the ringing in my ears finally escaped me, falling down the hole of infinity and out the other end into some other realm, a realm that was no longer located inside my head. The silence, a peace I have never known, was peaceful for a moment. 
but then I began to get the slightest tingles up my spine. I leaned back on my bed, curled up with my back hunched against the wall. I waited, and I listened, and for the first time the voice spoke not from within my skull, but from the wall above my desk. Darren. It spoke softly for the first time, but very clearly coming from a small painting of a little boy standing in front of a forest I had created long ago. Just how long, I wasn't sure, but it was before I began to have that gnawing ache in my lower back that leaves me in bed most days now. So it must have been at least a decade back. I waited for the voice to continue. When it didn't, I decided to try again to respond. This time I spoke very calmly. Yes? I waited. It's so wonderful to finally speak with you, Darren. It spoke in a whispery, raspy coo. It's so... So wonderful, Darren. The painting wasn't moving. It wasn't contorting. The boy in the artwork wasn't coming to life. Its lips weren't moving. Yet the voice was very, very clearly coming from that specific location. It was unbelievable. Feeling my aching heart begin to beat harder and harder in my chest, I whispered, where did you come from? I suppose there was a great deal of questions on my mind, but that was the one that slipped through. I've come from you, Darren, it hissed. Silence hung in the air like a decaying carcass. What do you mean you've come from me? What are you talking about? Who are you? I shouted. I was alarmed and I couldn't control the adrenaline coursing through my veins. I'm a phantom, Darren, it whispered. Your phantom. One of many. I began to feel dizzy, the blood rushing from my head away from my limbs, somehow seeming to disappear inside some hidden void within my body. I discovered myself sitting up in the bed, grasping the sheets with a death grip, and my legs tensed to hell. I released my attention and fell back against the wall and bed. What? What? I whispered. I felt on the verge of losing consciousness and needed to regain my energy. You're confused. The thing spoke. I was now beginning to notice strange little dots, ever-changing, almost sparkles, that radiated outward from the painting as it spoke. They dissipate and fall downward, and stop radiating the moment it ceased its communication. Humans have meant many things by the word phantom throughout time. Phantoms are really the whole, or fragmented parts of life's energy. You created me. You may have only intended to create me as an inanimate work of art, but you created life, Darren. Or I suppose it would be more accurate to say that you lent some of your own. The confusion was thick, too thick to think clearly. I didn't understand, and quickly sputtered out, I don't believe in phantoms. Phantoms aren't real. Despite not moving or changing at all, it seemed to smirk at me from the wall. Will you still feel that way once you've become a phantom, Darren? The slight fidgeting of my legs stopped as I seemed to lock eyes with the artwork. Beads of sweat began to roll down my forehead. I was shocked, frozen. 
You still don't understand, Darren. Every human has an inherent well of life energy. There are many names you could call this by, and many cultures have developed their own descriptions. But life energy is as simple a description for you as I can manage. As humans continue through their linear lifetimes, they put their energy into various things, relationships, and activities. They give their energy to a book they're reading. They put their energy into school. They give and take energy from relationships and loved ones. And they put their energy into their artwork. All of it, in your case. And when a human finally passes on, they assimilate into everything they have ever cherished, loved, and created. They become one with everyone they've ever loved. They take on the form of every creation they've ever known, and every place they've ever found peace. But in your specific situation, Darren, you're guaranteed to become one with us. I could barely comprehend what I was hearing. Not so much the story my painting was stringing together, but simply the fact that it was happening, and the possibility that it could be factual whatsoever. It couldn't be. It just couldn't be. Without a moment's thought, I huffed. What do you mean, become one with us? Again, that strange, invisible smile radiated out from the painting, and then the sparkles continued. Your artwork is all you've ever given yourself to, Darren. We're all you've ever loved, all you've ever cared about, all you've ever thought or dreamt about. You never cared about school. You never cared about any work you ever did as a young man. You've never even cared about a single person in your life, Darren. Not your parents. Not your sister. You've never found love or wanted to find love. We, your artwork, are the sole beneficiaries to your inheritance. To your energy. And when you pass on, you will pass on to us. You will become your artwork, here and forever. As the words of the painting began to sink in, I felt my stomach drop and my heart leap into my throat. It was impossible. What this painting was saying was absolutely impossible, and that the painting was saying anything was even more impossible. This all couldn't be. And if it was, it was an absolutely horrifying atrocity. A strange dystopia, a contortion of reality in the afterlife that shouldn't be and didn't make sense. I wasn't an extremely religious man, but I knew that what this so-called phantom was telling me wasn't right. It wasn't true. It couldn't be true. But if it was... It was to be the work of the devil himself. The next few hours flew by in a hazy blur. I remember running up and pulling the painting of the small boy in front of a forest off of the wall. I have a memory of gathering the rest of the paintings I had, scattered across the walls and crates within the closet, into multiple large trash bags. I remember pulling out an old metal trash can I'd found in the woods years ago into my backyard, filling it with the yard I'd worked my entire life to create, and lighting a match. All the while, the voice was whispering into my ears. I sat up against the house, watching in the pitch-black darkness the blazing fire. As my work turned to ash, I'd add more art to the flames, and when the art was gone, I added my blankets, and then my pillows. 
and then my spare canvases and any sketchbooks I had. I needed to get rid of anything and everything I'd ever given my energy to. I had to cleanse myself of this threat. And as the fires burned, the voice began to scream. But with time, the screaming gave way to silence. Pure, absolute silence. The fire raged on for hours, and when the final item, I believe the palette I had been using to paint that very night, had been destroyed, I dumped the ash somewhere in the woods. My memory from the night is a horrifyingly scant blur. It seems I was acting on some sort of autopilot, or was in a kind of fugue state. All I know is that by the time I felt I inhabited my body once again, I was sitting on the floor in the middle of a barren room. My artwork gone. My supplies gone. I turned around to discover my bed frame had been deconstructed and turned to ash in my frenzied haze, along with everything else I had managed to grab. The ringing in my ears had returned and it was louder than it had ever been before. I now have nothing, and I am absolutely no one. But if what the painting was telling me was true, if it truly was a phantom, and if I am doomed to be one as well, I feel I had no other choice. I feel I have nothing left to do. I feel... And that's where the journal ended. The sentence ended at the bottom of the back of the second page, right before the completely black, ink-drenched pages began. I was in a state of absolute shock. Was this true? Was this a genuine journal entry? I entertained the idea that my uncle had been working on some kind of a book or short paranormal fiction or something, but that wouldn't be like him. He wasn't the writing type, and his handwriting showed it. I scanned the first two pages again and again, reading various sections and trying to piece together anything I could have missed. And that's when I discovered a date written incredibly small in the lower left-hand corner of the front cover. It was 1-02-21, just two days before I received the call from Grandma about what had happened to Uncle Darren. The journal slipped through my trembling hands, and I stared off into and through the barren wall. My mind was going a mile a minute, and I kept flipping between feelings of pure horror and some kind of manic giddiness. This was all just so strange, too strange. I couldn't believe it to be real, but at the same time, what else could account for the state of the place? It was true that the place had obviously been ransacked. His artwork, truly the only thing he ever did or cared about, was completely and utterly missing, along with nearly everything else one could fit into a trash can. It all made a strange sort of twisted sense, yet I just couldn't believe it. Not knowing what else to do, I eventually got back up on my feet, grabbed the mattress that now had a decent-sized hole ripped back into the middle, and dragged it to the dumpster. When I got back inside, there wasn't much left to do, but I decided I should give the place a quick once-over to make sure I didn't miss anything. I checked the bathroom, and there was really nothing in there except a roll of toilet paper, which I felt would be worth leaving just in case. And then I checked the closet. The closet was completely empty, It was big enough to walk into, 
and I closed the door behind me so I could see the entirety of the small room and make sure nothing was missed. Nope, it all looked fine. But just as I was about to exit, I noticed on the wall right behind the door what appeared to be a small piece of thread. I got closer, and as I inspected the string, I noticed that where it met the wall, there appeared to be a small rectangular outline. A strange, barely visible, but definite indentation. The butterflies began to visit my stomach once again. Without thinking, I gave the thread a decent tug. The chunk of wall fell out and tumbled to the ground effortlessly. What I found behind the wall was a small hidden chamber which seemed to hold only one item. Though it was obscured by the shadows, I could tell immediately what it was. A canvas. And as I pulled it out, the side of the artwork contained within sent a wave of adrenaline through my body. Like I had said before, I hadn't met Uncle Darren very many times, but I'd seen him enough to know what he looked like. And so, when I saw his face, painted in such an impressively technical style, looking quite honestly more than photorealistic, I felt my breath leave me. The painting was a portrait of a kind. My uncle pictured from about the waist up, facing the viewer. He's wearing a stained button-down flannel shirt, and his face is contorted into the most pained scream I'd ever seen. His eyes were squinted, the muscles around them creased and strained. Red veins littered the whites of his eyes, and tears seemed to well within. The veins on his throat bulged, and his mouth was opened unnaturally wide, and what my mind could only imagine was a blood-curdling scream. Behind him was pitch-black darkness, but out of the darkness I could make out one item, a small hand emerging from the thick sheet of black and placed grabbing at his shoulder. It looked to be the skinny hand of a small boy. As I held the piece of art, a slew of emotions ran rampant through my mind and body. Darren's pain was unbearable, his utter fear undeniable, and the longer I stared, the more anxiety welled up within me. I couldn't stand it. I didn't know how the hell it could be possible, how any of this could possibly be reality. But in that moment, I knew for sure that Darren's soul, his life essence, his phantom, was trapped within that painting. I didn't have any idea of the specifics, but in a flash, the thought occurred that if Darren's journal entry was true, if the voices he heard were telling the truth, and he responded by destroying everything he had ever created and put his essence into, then perhaps what I was holding in my hands in that moment was the fruit, or rather the punishment, of his series of bad choices. If his essence couldn't assimilate back into his work, it had to go somewhere. It couldn't simply fall into obliteration. And so, he ended up here, trapped within a single work created specifically by something far beyond my comprehension for his eternal imprisonment. The skill with which the painting was constructed was far beyond anything Darren had ever even attempted. I only held the thing in my hands for a few minutes before I knew what I had to do. Walking outside, 
I turn the flashlight function on on my phone. I scan the yard for the tree line and sped to the forest. It took me only a few moments to find the metal trash can. Lugging it back to the backyard, I looked inside. Ash that seemed to have a tinge of red was burnt into the bottom. With barely a thought drifting through my mind, I broke the disgusting painting in two against my knee and threw it into the metal container. And then I walked back inside and grabbed the journal. As I watched the fire blaze against the painting, I flipped through my uncle's journal one last time. One more flip through his account, through his experience of a message from the other side, from his other side, and what he did to try and escape. If he knew the punishment to what he was doing, I know he would have done differently. I just hope that my actions now would right that horrible, horrible mistake and set my poor, poor Uncle Darren free. As I held the journal in my hands, I whispered out loud, Rest in peace, Darren. It's time for peace. And with that, I threw the journal into the fire. The flames flew four or five feet into the air, and sparks seemed to fly out in all directions. Another worldly hissing sound emanated from the container, but as the seconds passed, everything simmered down, and the flame began to normalize. And as the final sparks flew, as the flame rescinded and the hissing stopped, I heard a raspy, whispering voice call my name from within my skull. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers. <laughs>